This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So, Jason, of course, uh, we know we are focusing on what's going on with the virus. The U.S., what's happening here, may expand travel screening at some of its borders or at its borders, closely also monitoring 110 people to stop the spread of that deadly virus that's killed at least 80 in China. At least that's by, I think, my last check. Uh, And it's appearing around the globe from Singapore to Paris. Global markets, as we know, rattled by the virus. We just talked about it. Let's get into, though, some of maybe the more significant market implications, especially if this should endure. Peter Cheer is back with us, Head of Macro Strategy at Academy Securities. Peter's uh, on the phone from New Canaan, Connecticut. Peter, always nice to check in with you. Um, Better if it was that we weren't talking about a virus uh, that is killing people. How do you uh, assess this at uh, its current state? And do you you believe that we're kind of getting true numbers out of China? You know, I think that's the uh, biggest problem that we're all facing right now is you can see some, you know, reports on what this could all mean, but we don't know that we're getting true numbers. I think there would be a little bit more calm if the numbers that were coming out were coming out of somewhere else. Basically, I think most people disbelieve that China was early enough on this, that China's doing enough, and that the reported cases are all the cases out there. And that's causing a lot of the angst. And so as a market guru, how do you read this? And you always have such great institutional and historical uh, views of this. Peter, what is this like? What does it feel like? What comparisons should we be making here? You know, I think that a lot of people are talking what it looked like versus SARS and versus even Ebola. I think those comparisons aren't quite right. I think, you know, Ebola was a different type of virus um, and how it worked, sorry. Um, And SARS was so long ago, I don't know that you quite had that, you know, travel, that ease of travel that we see now, and this long incubation period. So it's probably a little bit different than anything we've seen. Having said that, you know, I think when you take a step back, the death rate so far, of at least reported ones, it doesn't seem to be that bad. Um, you know, I, I think we all kind of forget just how many people get right. killed by the flu. So right. there's a lot of reason, I think, to be optimism. Um, the one article I went back to a lot and told a lot of clients to read was, this, to be honest, was from The Economist back in 2002, and it was after the sniper attacks, and it talked about the um, illogic or the logic of irrational you know, concerns. So I, I do think we want to make sure we don't get carried away here. So I've been talking right. to clients, spending some money to buy puts, put some small hedges on, but not to panic at this stage. Having said that, Peter, based on the trading activity Friday, and I totally understand why people wouldn't want to ma- maybe take a bullish position ahead of the weekend, um, but seeing some of the selling again today, what does it tell you about kind of the market sentiment? Are investors at this point looking for a reason to sell? I think investors were looking for a reason to sell. I think right now most people are looking for a reason to stay. VIX, I think, hit 19 overnight. It's back to a 16 handle. I think most people, one, you know, just from a sanity standpoint, want this not to be a big issue. So I think there would be a lot of relief not to see this develop. I think you've seen a lot of hedges put on, and people are watching and hoping that this ends so that they can go back and rebuy this market. I think the market was, you know, doing quite well into this. That's what people are looking for. I don't sense a lot of fear or concern away from this specific issue. Right. And and how much of that do you think, Peter, has to do with the fact that you know, we it, 
looked like we saw the market, which is still down. The U.S. markets are still down. But it seemed to take at least a tick up earlier when there was a report saying that, you know, the U.S. exposure has been minimal so far. Um, you know, the cases that no new diagnosed cases that this is, quote unquote, contained in China, even though that's a massive country. What do we need to see in terms of the spread, either geographically or, or the depth of it, that would sort of rattle people further, do you think? You know, I, I think people are going to be very careful watching what goes on this week, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're talking about an incubation period as long as 14 right. days. So I think everyone's, even if we see a couple days of good data, everyone's going to really want to, you know, pardon the expression, but hold their breath until they see a real sustained stoppage of this. Um, the other thing I do think would be really important is to see that people with proper medical attention can come through this. Yes. And that the mortality rate is very low because, you know, the mortality rate in China is reasonably high. But again, I'm not sure anyone trusts the medical system in China there. So uh, that could be another thing that really stops the fear is seeing people who are hospitalized outside of China actually, you know, come through. That would be a big relief. So, Peter, so you mentioned premium puts at this point in terms of the market environment. Once we get beyond this and let's cross our fingers, hope that we do get, you know, quickly it's contained and it doesn't get any worse. What's the trade then? What are the, what's the trade you're thinking about after this? Um, you know, coming into last week, even before this, I thought the Fed was going to disappoint a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I was actually slightly bearish on um, equities, which that turned out okay, but I was also uh, bearish on treasuries. I thought yields would go a bit higher. Mm-hmm. That's obviously been, you know, the wrong way. So those things have kind of balanced themselves. I think if we get back to looking at the economy and the Fed and this passes us by, um, I think you look for higher yields and moderate growth in stocks, but nothing exceptional. I think you know, people are going to have to reconsolidate and see what higher yields means. I still like Europe better. And away from that, we're just really trying to make sure that this does come through, because otherwise I think you're going to see a lot of pressure on oil prices, commodities. Right. So we've seen a little bit of a, the other side of the hedge is to buy very domestic-focused companies. Got it. All right. Great to catch up with you, Peter Cheer. Always great context. We really appreciate it. Head of Macro Strategy for Academy Securities. He joined us on the phone from New Canaan, Connecticut. I mean, his point is so right that we need a few days to sort of look at this. You know, people need to either get home or get where they're going to be. You know, the Lunar New Year, I think, is still an issue out there in terms right, of... because the Chinese market's closed. Yeah, the Chinese markets are closed. They've extended the vacation for a lot of schools. So, you know, I was talking to a lot to expats over the weekend about this. So still a lot of big questions out there. Containment. I think that's gonna, what it's going to come down to. All right, so I'm pretty sure that when you and I were reading in this morning, this was a no-brainer. I know, we were like, going to, regardless of what's going on in the world, <laughs> we're going to talk about this story. And uh, as you mentioned a couple minutes ago, Carol, that even amid everything that's going on in the world, our customers are reading this story pretty yeah, fervently. Totally. It's all about the gym business. I'm just going to read the headline: Gym chains wrestle with debt, even as fitness industry is growing. Cat Doherty, she wrote it. She's here with us. Our high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy reporter. All right, I'm obsessed with this story. Tell us what you found here. So it's interesting. Memberships are at an all time high. We have tons of folks running to the gym. They're getting in their post-New Year's resolutions, trying to fulfill what they've committed to. So the fitness industry is thriving, but there are some middle market players that are struggling as we see consumers shift from one end of the market, the high end, boutique 
uh, expensive options or the lower end cheaper options. Right. So it's those in the middle, what we might consider the traditional gym players that are trying to fit into these shifts. And amidst all of that, they have a lot of debt on their balance sheet and they're having to pay off their borrowings. And when they have these obligations that are coming due, right. they need to also retain their members and they're having trouble doing so. And there's one name in particular that I wanna make sure you talk about because it's Town Sports International and that's New York Sports Club and Boston Sports Boston. Club and, mm-hmm. and, and others very familiar to our listeners and, and viewers here. They really are, and they've been stuck for a while in this like no man's land right in the middle tell us about that name right exactly so as you said uh, boston philly uh washington dc these are some major markets mostly on the east coast um but really all over uh so they have been stuck however recently there was an announcement which is shifting the narrative and that announcement was that new york sports club has proposed to acquire the uh, cycling studio flywheel and that is a boutique fitness as we have talked about the right. differentiator competitor uh, to soul cycle sort of an it, agro soul cycle exactly right? yeah. and they also have fly bar yeah. um so it's it's like a fitness um um kind of craze that's that's uh fitting within yeah. that um niche sort of market a boutique platform almost that they have yeah. exactly um so this acquisition would put town sports or New York sports club on that map of the niche capturing those um, either either new members or uh, having their existing members sign up and pay a higher cost right. in order to have access to fly. So they need it bottom line. They it would help. It is, I think, what, yes. In terms of attracting members and... Attracting members, retaining new, like, so retaining new members, retaining existing members, um, not losing existing members. But it also, on the debt side, um, this whole acquisition proposal would refinance their loan that's coming due in November. So it's a, it's an impending Gives them a longer window now. Gives them a longer, it would push out the maturity by four years. Otherwise, this comes due this year. And that is a big question mark for the company. How do they pay it off? How do they come to an agreement with their lenders? Now, the lenders do have to approve this acquisition, mm-hmm. but they're getting support. The company's getting support from Kennedy Lewis, who's the owner of Flywheel. Right. Well, and I love this element to the story because, and I have thought a lot about this over the years, you know, this notion that, you know, the boutiques are able to command, as you alluded to, a much higher premium essentially for their product. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these monthly memberships, while the business model is attractive, the sort of set it and forget it, like, you know, you're sort of paying your monthly dues, they they are in sort of a race to the bottom, right, in terms of the monthly fee. Exactly. I was talking to a fitness fanatic, and it was fascinating. She pays $70 a month for a gym out in Long Island, and she also pays $36 per class for SoulCycle. Right. And what's really, like, the differentiator that stood out to me here is that that $36, she pays individually that's not a recurring cost so she signs up for this class and she says charge my card next class charge my card she does two of these a week and so that requires thought it requires commitment and you just develop this following where people want to do that whereas with gyms you just have your card on file and every month just like your uh cable bill or or another recurring bill your netflix it just gets charged to your card and you say oh i've used this enough or i haven't um but otherwise those other companies they're relying on the uh, tribalism is a right. word that has been used or the following of people that 
are religiously on Sunday nights signing up for these classes and recharging whatever card they have on yeah. file. Also, maybe a sign that just, you know, too many new entries or too much stuff out there. You know, I keep hearing this about that everybody's competing for everyone's time yeah. and there's a lot of selection out there. Well, and next week, I believe we're going to hear from Peloton for their latest earnings. So yeah. uh, a lot to dig into there. Kat Doherty, great story. Terrific. Uh, it's all about gym chains and debt and what may happen next in the fitness business. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. It is time for Business Week Economics. Joining us right here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio, Vince Signorella, Global Macro Strategist at Bloomberg News, along with Yelena Shalitiva, our Senior U.S. Economist at Bloomberg Economics. Vince, i got to start with you here. Uh, we're definitely off our lows of the session when it comes uh, to the equity market trade. A little bit of a leg down in the last half hour or so, but again, not as bad as it was earlier. Earlier. Uh, what are you guys blogging about? What are you guys writing about? What are you hearing about? Well, traders took a little bit of solace. They embraced the news from the CDC press conference um, this morning, mm -hmm. said there were no new cases reported in the U.S., um, feeling that perhaps, probably a little bit of a stretch, but perhaps um, the, the spread of the virus is slowing. The other side of the coin is, and the pessimistic view is, we don't believe the economic numbers that come from China, so we're not really believing these. And the worry, meaning it's worse. Meaning the worry is that it's significantly worse than we're hearing. You flagged that to us, I yeah, thought, last and, week. And their guys are really you know, getting their arms around that today. So we'll see. It's a little bit of a wait-and-see mode. Absolutely. There's no way to – nothing we can do but do about it, yeah. And has your view of this, Yelena, changed you, you guys in the desk as you try and ascertain the sort of economic impact because, you know, effectively like closing borders or at least regional borders does presumably start to play through at some point. I know it's a lag, but but I do wonder how you think about it. Well, the biggest concern, I think, in terms of the impact on uh, the economy, on the Chinese economy, is extending that uh, holiday. Right. And uh, the that Lunar New Year that, holiday. The yeah. Lunar New Year holiday. And that would probably have uh, the major impact, um, you know, in terms of data collection, in terms of uh, how uh, this affects the service sector of the economy. Uh, so, one of the things our team is looking at is what, uh, how much the share of services in the Chinese economy has increased since uh, the SARS virus uh, back in 2003. So that um, makes a significantly bigger proportion of the uh, economic uh, activity right now. So, and uh, that makes it more uh, potentially more prone to, uh, to an impact, to a larger impact this time. Yeah, I, you know, it is kind of a wait and see, right, to some extent, but I do wonder, um, about the numbers. It makes me a little bit nervous. And if we talk about, you know, green swans, black swans, what have you, swans, um, I feel like this could be potentially something. But again, it's kind of a wait and see. Yeah, Until it, we know some more significant numbers, unfortunately, if it escalates. Yeah, and what it does is it delays, I mean, any plans for investment companies may have uh, wanted to accelerate due to the ending of the trade war, at least the the, the start of, of potential future negotiations, uh, it kind of puts it all on the back burner again. The positive that came out of the CDC, mm -hmm. CTC press conference today was that they noted that the survival rate of the virus on surfaces was very, very short. 
something I think in the neighborhood of nine hours. So, so it doesn't any, live long. It doesn't live long, and so any packages that might be imported, you know, in terms of the manufacturing from China, should not dampen appetite for that. So that is a slight positive for global growth. At least that part of the economy should not suffer greatly. All right. So let's talk economic news. Um, it's a Fed week, and isn't it crazy? It's like the first time I mentioned it uh, all day today yeah. um, that we do have our first Fed meeting of the year. Well, because Peter Cheer, when we were talking to him earlier, he was like, you know, I was rocking into this week, thinking, you know, thinking about this week, thinking, well, yeah, see what the Fed, Fed does. A little negative Get on what they the may do. The yeah, exactly. Super Bowl, <laughs> etc. Um, but there is a Fed meeting. It's expected that not a whole lot is going to happen. Andrew Husby, your your colleague, was telling us about that on on Friday. But what's the read here? So the 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 biggest focus is on the press conference. Uh, there will be a lot of different questions. Uh, probably also with respect to the virus and the uh, impact uh, right. on the economy. So uh, watch for uh, Chair Powell and see how he responds to that question. But I think uh, the focus is really on broader themes like the balance sheet developments, whether what the Fed is right now doing is QE or not QE, whether uh, they are going to finally introduce the standing repo market facility, how they are going to modify the dot plot, what they're doing in terms of communication, and uh, how they are preparing for the next crisis, not right now, but when the crisis actually comes, when the recession hits, what are the tools? So there's a lot of uh, uh, work going on behind the scenes right now. Vince, I do wonder, we have a uh, conversation um, coming up with Hard Rock CEO Jim Allen, and we talked about a bunch of things, including, you know, their hospitality company opening up hotels around the globe. So we talked a little bit about the virus impact. He had some, I don't want to give it away, but some interesting um, thoughts on the economic outlook. And I do wonder, are we hearing folks just saying the cycle has gone on too long? We've got to expect some kind of downturn. I'm just curious if there's any momentum among some of the folks that you talk to that you're, that people are starting to say, we're going to have a downturn. Human well, bus still exists. The, the conversation is definitely taking place. And one of the keys now is, I think where the conversation has shifted is that what we saw for the last 10 years as markets trading on liquidity from central banks isn't necessarily going to be the case going 10 years forward. And that looking forward, earnings really are going to have to be more the key. Now, the the sideline of that is if this continues, the PBOC may uh, do things in terms of adding liquidity that the markets don't expect, which could add to equity gains. So I don't think markets, I think we're looking at potentially the wrong central bank at this point. It's not going to be the Fed and probably won't be the Bank of England, unlikely to be the ECB. If it comes from anywhere, it'll come from China to probably try to stimulate growth that's being dragged down by this uh, by this virus. Just want to mention a quick headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal. This is involving Boeing uh, and Boeing apparently securing over $12 billion in financing. This is coming from CNBC. Stock is definitely off its lows of the day. We've yeah, seen on that. the move upward. Yeah, it's now still down about 1.8%, but definitely off its lows. And Boeing's so, a big thing yeah. in terms of the economy. Absolutely. So speaking about Boeing, we will get uh, some data tomorrow, actually tomorrow morning, uh, durable goods report, which mm -hmm. will uh, potentially tell us how much of an impact uh, does this uh, thing is having uh, on the economy and then you know how much it was already a burden back in 2019 and right. uh, potentially how much it will impact uh, economic growth this year all right our thanks as always Yelena Shalechova senior US economist for Bloomberg economics and Vincent Signorella global macro strategist 
for Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's take this virus story from a different angle. And I've been looking forward to this conversation because I feel like this is a part of the story that maybe we're not talking as much about. And we've got the perfect guy to talk about it. And that's the China piece, the political piece the legacy, sort of the ongoing legacy of President Xi Jinping. Andy Brown, here with us, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio, lived in China, runs this massive conference that we've done the last couple of years there, understands this so well. So how do we read this? I mean, this would appear to be a massive test for President Xi Jinping. This is a massive test for China. Yeah domestically and internationally, a test not just of the quality of the leadership and their, the values that they uphold, but the systems and the institutions that they've set up, the integrity, the scale, the robustness of those institutions, and of course, specifically in this case, the healthcare institutions. Well, and let's take us, I mean, I have spent so much time over the weekend talking about that one photo of, what was it, like 20 excavators, right? frantically seemingly digging and they're supposed to build a hospital in about a week right so this is china at its best okay? right this, this i feel is a little the... managed andy <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no in terms of the photo but go ahead please it, it, it's it, it's awesome. I mean, the, the the capacity of the Chinese state to respond at times like these is really incredibly impressive. So, you know, a hospital in six days. During SARS back in 2002, 2003, they built a hospital in Beijing in seven days. So, so they can Wuhan, do it. They can do it. Yeah. You know, and so in Wuhan, I think there was a bit of one-upmanship. Okay, we're going to do it in, in six. Of course, it's prefabricated. But nevertheless, this is a sophisticated building with labs and, you know, uh, a uh, awards and and y- 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 it's like y- a y- video y- game. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, it's it's um, you know so so that piece has has, has gone very well. Um, perhaps uh, what has gone less well um, is the social and the political aspects of this. And in particular, people are focusing on uh, the quarantine itself. Right. You know, how value, how useful has this been, right? I mean, they're locking down 60 million people. Nobody has, nobody has ever before in human history attempted this. We don't know what the outcome is. We don't know if this is going to help or make things worse. Well, and I also wonder, you know, I I feel like we've been speculating a little bit uh, along with other folks about the contours of the timing of this as it relates to the Lunar New Year holiday. You know, and I was alluding to this earlier as as I sort of talked and and heard about some of our expat friends and who were one of them uh, back in the day. You know, people tend to go away for a holiday. You know, some friends that, that I know of have you know, they're in Australia at this point, they're like staying put and not coming back. Like help us understand sort of the contours of the travel and things like that, because that complicates this, right? Complicates it immeasurably domestically. You know, you have you have something like this time of year, three billion trips planned around China. You know, people right. are going off visiting their, their families and then internationally. So, you know, this is the big difference between now and and, and SARS. You know, back in 2000, Chinese travel out of China, about 10 million trips a year out of China. Now it's 150 million trips yeah. moving towards 200 million trips a year. Um, so the risk to the global economy and to global health from pandemics or epidemics in China is exponentially greater. 
But what I love that you ask, you say this, you know, sealing off cities, is it a necessary move that demonstrates the advantages of a command and control government? Or is it a wild overaction by Xi, President Xi, made possible by the absence of checks and balances, public debate and media scrutiny? I mean, this is the test. If what was done, it's going to be like genius, right? And if Oh, we'll never know make, because it's impossible uh, to prove a counterfactual. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, 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 there point. is some evidence that if you lock down, if you prevent travel at the outset right. of an epidemic, you may be able to slow its spread. There's an awful lot of evidence that you may actually exacerbate shortages. What happens is you create panic. Right. People, you know, under any circumstances, you're putting healthcare systems in an epidemic like this under enormous strain, which creates shortages, shortages of medicine and mm-hmm. testing kits and goggles and masks and hospital beds and medical personnel, when you declare a quarantine, you tend to exacerbate those shortages and you put an enormous strain on, on, on cities. I mean, people in Wuhan are finding it difficult to get out and about and buy food, uh, uh, go to hospitals. Right. Um, uh, it's, it's difficult for medical equipment and supplies to reach the hospitals. You know, and, and what happens in China, it's, it's very, the medical system is a hospital-based system. They have no primary care right. in China. So, so uh, under any circumstances... So everybody goes to the hospital. Yeah, if you get the flu, you go to the hospital. If you have a sniffle, you go to the hospital. They put you on a drip. So now what you've got is this stampede of people to hospitals, people who may genuinely be sick with this virus, mm-hmm. and people who think they may be, they're worried well, you know, and, and, and they're all sort of crowded in hospital corridors now, and, and the hospitals themselves are becoming vectors for infection. Oof. Well, uh, it's really good context. We always appreciate it, Andy Brown. Next time I want to talk to you because we've run out of time about the response of big businesses, big global businesses, and how that uh, may play out. So much more to come on this story we know from Andy Brown, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy. He was here with us in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, time for the drive to the close on this Monday. We are definitely well off our lows of the session. Craig Johnson is back with us, Chief Market Technician at Piper Sandler, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York. Good afternoon. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. How are you looking at this market, technically? Technically, I look at this market as this is a market that was kind of like dry tinder, to be honest with you. We wrote up a piece in January uh, talking about melt-ups. Man, we kind of made it a play on words. I'll stop the world and melt with you. Yeah. And that's exactly what we were thinking this market was doing. And we thought it was only a matter of time before there was some sort of an event that was going to lead to a sell-off or a correction in the market. Now, I don't think this is the end of uh, the bull market by any stretch, but I think it is a healthy correction. And if you just look at some of the levels on the chart of the S&P 500, you can see that your 50-day comes into play um, at levels where you're closer to about... Uh, kind of love thir- a guest who like, walks in and says, can I pull up my Bloomberg? Because I'm going to yeah, look at some charts. Exactly. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> at 3198, and then you've got uh, the 200-day moving average that comes in around 3,000. Yeah. So a good healthy 5 to 10% correction, I think, would be very healthy for this market. Like we've seen over the past 
last year a couple of times, whether it was the summer sell-off or whether it was the end of the year sell-off um, a year ago. You know, I just we've seen this before. Correct. We've gone from FOMO in uh, 2018, January of 18, we raised our hand and said, hey, look, there's a lot of charts that are going parabolic right now. Right. And back then it was Caterpillar and it was 3M and it was Boeing. Right. And if you pull up any of those charts today, you can see you've had very meaningful corrections in all those stocks. And then you went from FOMO, and then you went to JOMO. And JOMO was the joy of missing out in the entire fourth quarter of uh, 2018. <laughs> right. And then you've gone back into full-on and FOMO. And summer, August of 2019. Correct. And then you went into full-on FOMO again. And now I think you're entering a period, well, I don't know if it's JOMO quite yet, but I think it's time to take some money off the table. You look at charts like Apple. But I love when you guys say that. It's time to take some money off the table. So me, in a 10% mm -hmm. correction or whatever, I'd be like, let me take it all off the table because I would rather you know, preserve my investments rather than lose it. What do you mean when you say take some money off the table? Well, take a chart like Apple. Here's another example of a stock that's gone pretty much parabolic. You're very uh, stretched above your 200-day moving average. If I own that, I would take some profits in that name. Now, where would I put it? Because you want to take Up it Up 86% last year. 86%. We right. bought it for the, uh, for the for the Piper Sandler model uh, right there at the lows in December and we own it and we're looking at these names and we think it's time to trim this. Now, where do you do with the money? Because you don't want to be out of the market. So look at a stock like GE. Mm -hmm. It's already very well beat up. Even if the market corrects further, you've got a pretty good basis starting to form on that chart on a weekly basis. So why don't you want to be out of the market? When you say out of the market, meaning you don't want to be out of the equity market? Yeah, you don't want to necessarily be out of the equity market because there's opportunities uh, to be had. If you Private go, market, I can make a lot more money right now. Sure, but there's also in this market, we can clip some dividends. We can wait for some of these returns. Market timing is tough. Yes, that's what we're supposed to do as professionals is get that market timing right. But for the average individual to say to them, hey, take money off the table, walk away, go to cash, they're probably not going to put it back in at an opportune time. So if you rotate and take some money, uh, trim some of the positions at Apple and some of the other extended names like Adobe and uh, ServiceNow and some of these names, and maybe buy a Philip Morris that's already right. kind of corrected and starting to turn back up, or even buy um, the energy names, which yeah. has been way out of favor with a lot of people. But I see less downside in some of those names if you do get a bigger correction in this tape, and you can clip some 3 and 4% dividends in some very nice-looking energy so stocks. So even if you don't get the upside, you get the dividend. Correct. Talk to us about Visa. Uh, that's a name that I think uh, you mentioned as well as, as potentially uh, being a, attractive. Why? Well, the primary trend on Visa still is you know up and to the right. But when you look at the chart of Visa, you've really been sort of consolidating for the better part of six months. You broke out. Now you're coming back to retest support. I would think that you will find support on Visa probably around 188 at the 50-day, uh, worst case 176, and all you're doing is coming back and to retest support, mm -hmm. and then I'd expect to see another leg higher. Again, nothing is wrong with Apple. It's a great company. We just have to differentiate with what we do between what's a great company and what's a great stock. Right. And would you put fresh money into Apple today? I'd, I ask anybody here, right? Well, you would if you believe it's growth proposition, right? And I mean, it's interesting because I think about a year ago, remember we were talking to Gene Munster and he said Apple's going to be the best performing FANG stock. He was right. And Correct. there are a lot of folks that, you know, people constantly that there are naysayers and yet it consistently returns. Um, so I know you're saying not don't sell everything, but I mean, I do wonder about those FANG names that seem to consistently return. 
Sure. And again, I, I, there's nothing wrong fundamentally from the Apple perspective. It's just a question of with the with this stock 30 and change now percent above its 200 day moving average. Is right. this where you want to put new money? For me, the answer is no. I think I'd rather even buy... with a new phone coming later next uh, later at the end of the year. Well, don't tell my wife, <laughs> but I'm probably. I'm gonna... waiting. That's what I'm waiting for is the 5G upgrade. I buy every new phone that comes out, right. and I turn around and I recycle them to the rest of the family. But my wife <laughs> but doesn't you know like to saying? always hear this. This is a good catalyst, right? Yeah. But but at the end of the day, if you got to make a choice between putting this into to what now and thinking about it from a risk reward perspective. I'd wait for a little bit of a correction or a pullback okay. and, and take some of the profits out of these names. It's a huge part of the benchmark, and a lot of portfolio managers can't even own a full position of Apple because mm -hmm. it's 5 6% of the S&P 500. Right, right. So they buy all the derivative names to build up their position, and it kind of creates this kind of lift effect. But if Apple stumbles or has any challenges with their earnings, not that I'm foreshadowing that this week, it's going to lead to a bigger, deeper sell-off for the entire market because it's going to be such a huge weight for all these tech stocks. You mentioned ServiceNow in, mm -hmm. in passing. It's a name that we're interested in, in part because we spent some time uh, with the outgoing CEO, obviously headed to uh, uh, take the big job at Nike, but you've got Bill McDermott coming in, uh, seasoned executive there. Uh, what do the charts tell you about now? So when I look at uh, ServiceNow, it's a great looking chart. It's made a very nice looking base. It's broken out above the old highs you had back in July. And it's just now correcting right back to uh, where this stock had broke out at. So from my perspective, this pullback toward you know, 295, 300, it's going to be an opportunity to be buying that stock. And it's not nearly as extended above its 200-day mm -hmm. as what I have with Apple and some of the other names. I love GE. You're interested. Just 20 seconds here. What's your pitch here? What's your elevator pitch for GE? Besides yeah. that, it's just gotten beaten up so much. The elevator pitch for GE is when I go back and I look at these longer-term charts on GE, weekly charts and monthly charts, it's making a long-term bottom. And truly, Nobody cares. I like some of these stocks when they make big bottoms and nobody cares. Up 53% last year. Still nobody cares. Still nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares. So, nobody you'd buy, is, so you'd buy it. I would. And nobody's asked me about GE in probably six months. Yeah. All right. Well, you should come here because we talk about it a lot. Yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> we'll ask you about it all day long. Craig Johnson, Chief Market Technician for Piper Sandler, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.